everyone to the Culture Encounters podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ombi. If this is your first time here with us, welcome. It is really good to have you here. Thank you. Um, if you're not familiar with our organization, we are Culture Encounters. Our mission is to ignite cultural curiosity, knowledge, and appreciation in our region through the transformative powers of the art, shared experiences, and open dialogue while serving as a model for global harmony. We want to bring people together using and utilizing all of our resources to embrace and, um, and experience as many cultures as possible um, in a way that is both um, inclusive and also inviting. Um, to that end, um, we are going to continue on with our road trip series. So we've got another episode of Road Trip, uh, and I'm very excited to talk with my guest today. Um, we are talking all things Oklahoma. That's right, Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. That was one of the first musicals I was ever in. If anyone's ever heard me sing, I should never be in one, but they did it in high school anyway. I digress. Uh, so anyway, some fast facts about uh, Oklahoma. It is the Sooner State. It achieved statehood in 1907. Uh, the capital is Oklahoma City. The biggest city is Oklahoma City. Uh, the... Um, state bird is the scissor-tailed flycatcher. Try saying that five times fast. I'm going to make my theater students do that. And the state flower is the Oklahoma rose. Um, so today I have with me um, my dear friend um, Maggie, who is going to be with us today. She is a co-worker of mine. Um, she is one of the most intelligent people you'll meet as far as just having a conversation with her. Um, she's incredibly intelligent. Um, so I'm really, really, really looking forward to our, our conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so without further ado, let's, that's enough of me talking. Let's bring in my colleague and friend, Maggie Wilson. Maggie, what's going on? How are you, man? Hey, I am doing great. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here. I uh, appreciate it. Taking time on a very, very, very cold uh, evening in here in Richmond, Virginia. It is cold, man. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Um, so, um, you grew up in Oklahoma. So talk about, um, how long you lived there. Um, where did you live in Oklahoma and just overall, what was your experience like? Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Oklahoma, as we say, Mm -hmm. uh, technically in a small town, about 30 minutes east of Oklahoma city. Okay. So if anybody asks where I'm from that isn't from the area, I just say Oklahoma City because it's easier than trying to explain the location of a very small town I was in. Right, right. We had one um, stoplight that flashed red, but it wasn't even installed in town until I was in high school. My graduating class was about 70 students. And I would say probably 60 or 70% of us were what we call 13-year seniors. I don't know if they use that term on the East Coast or not, but that's people that have been in the same class from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. Wow. Like the same physical room or? Oh well, my. schools, because there's only one elementary, middle, and high school in the town. Okay. I got you. So everybody knows. So what was that like growing up where everybody kind of knows everybody, um, you know, from you know, when they're knee high to a duck or whatever. So like, are what? It's a, it's a colloquialism. Is it a Virginia colloquialism? I, I don't know. Uh, I had a, a very, um, a very, uh, bombastic theater professor who used to say things like that. Uh, thank okay. you. Uh, yeah. But so like, what, what is that like? Um, you know, cause I, growing up in a suburb, which is where I grew up, you, you had some of that, but you also could get away from it if you wanted to. 
Um, what was that like? Kind of know everybody knows everybody. Did it create a sense of community? Um, did it create a sense of not community? Like, what was that like? I think it can definitely both go, go both directions. And just like you and I teaching in the same building, we'll say, oh, the sixth grade class is kind of this characteristic, but the seventh grade class is kind of this characteristic. Right. Our community was really similar in that way as well, because so much of our class grew up together, start to finish. I happen to be in a really intelligent driven group of classmates. So we mm -hmm. definitely had the class clowns. We definitely had people with varying expectations and varying families. But overall, we were pretty much academic achievers. We were interested in learning new things and had pretty good relationships education-wise. Mm -hmm. In the larger community, I loved it because I had the same friends that I'd had since I think second grade was when I met my best friend. That was my best friend all the way up through college. Mm -hmm. And so just because of sheer proximity, there's no possibility of her getting transferred to a different school. If anything, maybe for fifth grade year, she'd be across the hallway or something. Right. So that was the aspect of it that I knew. I had a short time working with agriculture and the um, FFA and 4-H specifically with livestock. Okay. And at that time, I saw a little bit more of the political dynamic and seeing certain families that had more economic advantage or disadvantage and how that impacted their ability in things like sports and things like FFA and having livestock or competing in different areas. But I personally, in many ways, was an oblivious kid. I kept my nose in the books and my parents have a couple of acres and a pond. And so I would just go sit out in the backyard and climb trees and in many ways was unaware of a lot of the social stressors that I think typically come with middle school and high school, which protected me, I think, in a lot of ways. Right. So I definitely know for my little brother, it's proved advantageous as he's become an adult, because now that he is a contractor, real estate investor, he knows people that are buying homes. He knows people that are doing remodels. He knows people in a like variety of trades and professions because right. he had such a tight knit class that has stayed in contact and that loved going to their 10 year reunion and that are having getting married to, like at the same time and having babies at the same time. So he's really seen a positive outcome because of that. Whereas I choosing to move away, obviously I'm not near as tight with people back home as right. chance he is, sure. but I did love growing up in that setting. That's awesome. Um, the, you know, the growing up part, um, you mentioned FFA for, for those not familiar. Um, can you explain what that means? Yes. FFA stands for future farmers of America. And it okay. is actually a really well-respected nationwide organization. It's right. been around for a long, long time and addresses not just farming um, and agriculture, but livestock, husbandry, um, showmanship. There are different aspects of it that address, let me think, you can do speeches, you can do basic trades like welding and craftsmanship, like carpentry, uh -huh. and I'm sure a lot more. But basically, it is a practical skill set and a club that you can get involved in starting, I think, in middle school with 4-H and then in high school with FFA. And you can end up going to national competitions, getting scholarships and getting payouts for winning different shows. So how big of a statewide, I don't know if you would know statewide, obviously in your individual community, um, agriculture was a very big part of your community. Um, how big of a deal is that in Oklahoma as a whole, just the, the agriculture community? I know you and I, and we'll talk about it, uh, had discussed your that's my cow game, uh, which I think yes. is the coolest thing. Yes. <laughs> it's very fun for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I am not great with numbers, which is why I teach English. <laughs> right. We'll say, I think that agriculture is a lot bigger deal than I ever realized growing up in Oklahoma in my little bubble. Mm-hmm. Cause although my family has a couple acres and we specifically worked with pigs as our one form of livestock, mm-hmm. I didn't personally remember talking to or visiting family or family or friends on farms. But since becoming an adult, I'm realizing that that touches whole swatches of the state that I may or may not have ever traveled to in my lifetime. So as I've met people that are full-time farmers with multiple hundreds of acres, and I drive past their land all the time on the way to and from the city. So it's Mm -hmm. definitely a big part of our economy in the same way that like oil and gas is a huge part of our economy. I got you. Um, Transitioning now real quick to multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we can discuss you know, obviously we want to keep things, you know, as positive on this podcast as possible, but also honesty is really important. Um, I don't think we can discuss Oklahoma without discussing the trail of tears. Um, So I'll ask from your perspective, is that something that was like in schools growing up? Was that a part of your curriculum? Um, Was that a whitewashed part of the curriculum? Was that something that, um, was important to learn about for you guys? Or was that something that you kind of would have had to study on your own? I feel like we got a nod towards it. Okay. So I honestly don't remember a ton about what I learned in elementary, middle, or high school about it. Mm -hmm. I guess you could say in that case, it might've been whitewashed, but honestly, I don't know what we were told as much to say whether or not it was accurate. I think for the most part, it was a geographic conversation on how come there are so many indigenous peoples in Oklahoma from so many different tribes. So where did they come from, from across the country and even Canada and Mexico I've learned and just the last few weeks actually in doing some personal research. So it was it geographic and it was a little bit of heritage and why do we have artifacts? Why can you still go to state parks and find arrowheads? But I don't remember it being talked about as a, travesty, unfortunately. I don't sure. remember it being discussed as something like that we should learn from or that we shouldn't repeat. It was just a, here's right. what happened and fast forward, here's why you're going to see and recognize some of these things in the modern day Oklahoma we live in. Now let's move on to the next section. That's right. what I remember at least an impression of it. I got you. And I think that's pretty common for most things that happen in any geographic state. We do, um, you know, where it is kind of glossed over, um, for that reason. Um, and, you know, we do have a lot of listeners from other countries and other cultures. So for some context, um, and please correct me if any of this is wrong, um, in the 1820s and 1830s, um, it was the height of Manifest Destiny and this ideal um, in America, um, or in North America specifically, that it is, you know, we need to continue colonizing and pushing and expanding westward. Um, and there were several um, indigenous tribes, specifically the Cherokee, Choctaw, um, Chickasaw, Seminole, um, and probably some more I'm forgetting, um, that President Andrew Jackson and then his successor, Martin Van Buren, um, displaced from their homes in Tennessee, in North Carolina, in Virginia's, in South Carolina. And, you know, they were displaced from their homes and basically became refugees in um, were displaced and moved towards Oklahoma. Um, and um, on that trail there, I don't have a, a number or a statistic, um, but I do know that the the death count was not low. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that your, a pretty decent under, like a good, like Wikipedia for that it? Is, that is a good summation of what I understand the Oklahoma Trail of Tears to be. I will say, however, that there were multiple trails of tears. Sure, sure. So it wasn't just a pet push due west from those eastern states, but there were also pushes out of the northeast, out of Canada, out of Mexico, out of Florida, even towards anywhere westward America. People ended up all across the plains region of the states. Right. And now you had mentioned, you know, you had said there's a big indigenous population in Oklahoma. Was that something you were aware of as a child? Um, You know, only because of neighbors. Um, It wasn't something I really thought about. I don't know that I grew up with I'm trying to think about it. I don't know that I grew up with any close friends or classmates who were of different cultural backgrounds than I was in right. the small town I was in. I just remember that on one of the streets just west of us, there were a couple families, and I honestly don't even know which tribe they're in. Mm-hmm. But during a certain festival throughout the year, they put up teepees and stay in teepees for a week or a month each spring. Mm-hmm. So I remember seeing the teepees in the yard and just thinking it was really cool and it seemed fascinating to me, but not really having a personal relationship at any point until I got to college where we right. started having some honestly better and more open conversations about what that looks like. Um, right. In, in other conversations you and I have had, you had mentioned casinos. Um, yes. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because in Richmond right now, that is a very hot topic because there has been a casino battle for the last several election cycles of trying some trying to get this casino passed in Richmond and some um, it's been voted down twice to my knowledge. Um, So you and I have discussed this. So let's discuss it a little Mm -hmm. bit more Um, on talk a little bit about the, the casinos that are, are they run by the indigenous tribes? Are they kind of like a a reparation type situation? What, what is the, the -hmm. culture around casinos? So, what I'm aware of is that they are commonly called Indian casinos. Okay. What we say. Sure. I got, I got you. So in that sense, I do know for sure that there are certain tribes, I think like the Cherokee and Chickasaw, which are some of the um, larger tribes that are more established as far as governance and scholarship programs and everything, to my knowledge, mm-hmm. right. that specifically build their own casinos across the state and build really beautiful spaces. I don't have any idea concerning the reparation part of it. Right. Wouldn't be surprised if some money was put towards the casinos, if it did come in that form, but I do know it's a huge source of revenue for some of the tribes and that in many ways they are boosts for local economy in the sense of being conference centers and restaurants and diversion. But I also know that with the rise of, a lot of different casinos across the state. There has also been the rise of a lot of gambling addiction, a lot of alcoholism, and a lot of nonprofits that are trying to address those needs as well. And that's with indigenous peoples and people across the state. Right. And I won't get into specifics for um, respect of the people in my life, but um, I gambling addiction is no joke. Um, it, yeah. it, you know what I mean? Like it's it's real, man. And if for those who have suffered from that illness or or have been family members of those who have suffered for that illness, please seek help. Um, nothing to be, you know, don't be ashamed of needing help, but it is, it's real. Like it's not a punchline. And I feel like in society, anything that's an addiction, that's not like drugs or alcohol, people are like, Oh, it's haha, I'm addicted to this. Like, no, it's a real thing. And it yeah. can, it can be very harmful. So 
I think that's interesting. The idea of unintended consequences. So like, mm-hmm. I wonder if like the, in, the intent of these casinos, right. Is, is to be a good thing. And there are, it sounds for me, like there are some positive things coming into it. Um, but it also sounds to me like there are some negative unintended consequences. And I think that's really into, important to remember for anything that anybody does, right. Is, you know, you never know, um, yeah. You know, there or, or you have to think about the whole picture. I guess the whole pizza, so mm-hmm. to speak, before mm-hmm. like you know. Um. Um. So, growing up, I want to talk. I want to go back a little bit to kind of the crux of what this is about, which is um, the microcultures, so to speak, or the regionalisms of mm-hmm. each place. So, yeah. say you grow up in a small town in Oklahoma, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll talk like Oklahoma City that might be a little bit different, or Tulsa that might be different, or whatever. Um, so, like in Richmond, you know, we—if you're bored, you you go to a museum, you go to a play, you you know, go do just like random things in the city that are fun. Um, yeah, you know, you hang out with your friends if you want to stay in, play a board game, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of history in Virginia, I would imagine much in in oklahoma as well um say you're like a young person in oklahoma and you've got a saturday night what are you what are you doing what is like the like are you are you hanging out with a friend are you you going to like a local watering hole are you does it really kind of depend on who you are well first my question is how young are we talking do you have a car or not let's say let's do both let's say no car what are you doing and then let's say car okay so Please bear in mind, I'm an odd individual by Oklahoma. <laughs> right, right. General, I'm not sure. But for <laughs> me, especially before the car era, it mm-hmm. was very much planned. I guess you could even just call them play dates, even up until middle school, where we had a weekly agreement with my best friend's family. And my parents have a couple acres, but her parents had a couple acres that were right next to a hundred acre cattle ranch. Okay. And so as long as the weather was nice, we were typically outside. So if we were at my place, we'd go across the pond and climb trees and pick mulberries and do whatever children do in the forest just for funsies. And if we were at her place, we would go explore the hundred acres. There were persimmon trees that we would pick in season. I still never had a persimmon I really loved, but I've heard they can be wonderful. Great. And there were gullies and ravines all throughout the land that, of course, get filled up when the water comes. But otherwise, they're just dry creek beds. And so we would regularly be constructing... I don't know, our own little forts and tents and mud pies and just being kids. But access to nature was a huge aspect of our upbringing so at you, that age. Mm-hmm. You, be, you being an English teacher, um, you know, you obviously have to have a love for literature, which means you have to have a vast imagination. Do yes. you think that having that experience like outside and kind of making your own worlds outside is kind of, you know, contributed yes. to that? Yes, absolutely. I think every child needs access to some outdoor space, like if it's at all possible. And that with that, I'm a big believer in um, things that, what do do they call them? Toys that are nondescript. So building blocks that don't have anything painted on them. Right. What do they call them? They call them loose parts. Sure. Like, like, uh, like Lincoln logs or whatever, or not even like Lincoln logs, but like, I know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, like giving them empty boxes and toilet paper tubes and egg cartons and tape and paint. And, and then just down. being. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. having very much these unscripted opportunities to explore. That mm-hmm. was a huge part of my life. Ever since I was five, I wanted to be an artist. I was always painting and drawing. And I thought I was the 
best things to slice bread. And I was encouraged in that. I was allowed to sit for hours by myself in my room and paint. And I was allowed to cut up milk cartons and make bird feeders and do whatever. And I remember really enjoying the freedom to do those things. And it's crazy to me nowadays, A, to see how early and quickly access to screens happens, but B, how many kids, even if you give them paper and pen and scissors, don't really know what to do with it. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's very, very process or product over process driven Mm -hmm. right now. Like, and that's something that I've noticed with my students, um, you know, they are very concerned with doing things right. And I tell them all the time as a theater teacher, I'm like, my class is the one it's okay to fail. Like if you fail, then that's great. You're going to learn from it. Not Mm -hmm. fail the class. Failure is like, like fall on your face a little bit because that means it's safe for you to do that. And I, I, I do not envy you and our other core teacher friends who are so like, oh my gosh. And I'm not even speaking school specifically. I'm speaking in our country as a whole. Like, you know, you're so, it's so rigid right now. And it's like, no, like you need that opportunity to explore and learn and grow. Mm -hmm. Um, As you were, you were saying with that. Okay. So now let's talk about car. What would you do if you had a car? So with a car, you take the car and you go to natural spaces. (laughs) (laughs) So. Like, you know, historic Route 66. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Okay, cool. Okay, so what, so what... my town is, I'm trying to think about how you would see it in a mirror. So Jones is right here. Historic Route 66 is right here and leads all the way into Oklahoma City. So that's the Route 66 in, from like Tennessee? I like think same road? So. Wow, I think okay. So, yeah. so one stretch of it goes, I don't know, 20 minutes north of my house that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And it's not a super kitschy part of anything. It's just a street. But right before you get there, there's a creek. And I learned, I think when I was in high school, that my dad and my grandpa used to go to this creek and go fishing. I said, we've like missed out on a cultural opportunity. <laughs> we have to go check out this creek that my dad and my grandpa used to fish in and hang out at. Yeah. We did. We just drove our little car and went down and it was a spot. There was somebody else fishing there. There were people coming in to do like a little photo shoot and you can swim and literally kind of in a watering hole aspect. You can fish, you can hang out. There's ledges. It's obvious that people are in and out and there's been little campfires and stuff. So right. those natural spaces, whether it is a Creek, which I'm always drawn to water. So that's where I would end up sure. or just going out to fields, having pasture parties is what they're called. Um, I didn't do this until college. Once again, not the normal experience for most people from what I understand, but you go and you'll take, especially if people have pickup trucks or things that'll open up where you can have seating in the back and you go and back the pickup trucks up. So you have multiple seats and you'll often have a campfire. And if you're on somebody's land where you can shoot often, there'll be like, you build, build a mock shooting range and it'll shoot at cans or whatever. It's you so- might marshmallows. You might just drink beer, whatever it is. Sounds very DIY. Um, Mm-hmm. So that, which I think, I think, I, I think we're getting to the crux of something. So the correct Oklahoma, it sounds like there's a lot of like that do it yourself mentality and mm-hmm. like make your own, like make something that is yours. Cause it's going to mean more to you. Like I, that seems really cool. Mm-hmm.